Welcome to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. This is season number two, episode number one. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to the introduction, kind of get your bearings straight as to where we're going this season. But I'd like to think that this is something of a thinking person's podcast. You might not agree with that, but that's okay. I mean, I don't know if you've heard about the intellectual dark web, but it's guys like uh, Jordan Shapiro and, um, I mean, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and other guys like that. And I'm like, hey, man, if they can dub themselves intellectuals, why can't we dub ourselves at least, you know, thinking people? So this might not be the intellectual dark web. Maybe it's the intellectual light web. Could be L-I-T-E or L-I-G-H-T. I don't know. But uh, hopefully we'll give you some stuff here to chew on and to think about. What's Liz Gilbert say? My mind is like a golden retriever. It needs something good to chew on. And I think we're going to give you some stuff to chew on. So that'll be fun. I'd like to thank my guests who will pop up from time to time throughout, especially the first few episodes. The further along we get, I may change the format. But so here are four new friends of mine. Uh, First of all, we have Cindy Wang Brandt, who's an author and a podcaster. Her book is called Parenting Forward. Her children's online conference coming up at the end of April. I think it's called the Parenting Forward Conference. You're going to want to check her out. She has a lot of really interesting things and important things, I think, to say. And I'm grateful for the time that we've had together to talk. Uh, There's Dr. Julia Robinson-Moore. She is a professor of religious studies at UNC Charlotte. And Dr. Julia is also an author. She's got a few books out. The book of hers that I have in my library is called Race, Religion, and the Pulpit. It's about the remarkable life of Reverend Robert L. Bradby and the making of urban Detroit. So for all my Detroit listeners, shout out to you. You're going to be interested in that, and uh, you're going to like what Dr. Julia has to say. Um, Then there's Peter Rollins and James Allison. Peter Rollins is an Irish philosopher, or he's a philosopher who's Irish. I don't know which one comes first, but he's helped me a lot over the last five years to ask better questions and to deconstruct uh, what I thought in order to reconstruct into something that I think is better. Although the reconstruction process, I think, is going to take the rest of my life. And maybe that is the way it should be. Maybe that's the whole point. And then there's James Allison. James is a Catholic theologian. He's a prolific writer and a speaker and is currently my very favorite theologian even though I've only been reading him for maybe three or four years. But he's brilliant, I think. So the plan is to weave each of these people in from time to time. Uh, As I have time and creativity to do that, (laughs) it's taken me uh, a lot longer than I imagined to pull uh, most of this together. But I should say that I'm not necessarily suggesting that each of these folks agree with everything that I have to say. I think that probably they agree with most everything, and maybe they do, I don't know. But the point is to learn more about them and their expansive theology and psychology and philosophy, you should check them out online. I'll put all of their information in the show notes so you can find them there, but you can easily Google each one of these really interesting people. Well, we're in a really difficult time. In our culture right now, I know you are probably like me. The whole world has been turned upside down, it feels like. 
Some of us are dealing with COVID-19 coronavirus in more intense ways than others, but my heart goes out to everyone who is who is reformatting their lives and trying to find a new normal. In particular, the last few days I've been thinking a bit about those of you who maybe in previous years had been abused or manipulated in some way. You'd been in some kind of setting where the power had been taken from you. I've been thinking the last few days about how now in this situation, this could definitely be triggering some things for you because all of a sudden, completely out of your control, you know, the power has been taken away from you again. And I wonder, I've wondered how you've been interacting with all of that and dealing with all that. And for whatever it's worth, I wanted to mention that and just tell you to the best of my ability that I'm standing with you in solidarity and I'm praying for you and thinking about you. And I hope that you know that at the very moment you're feeling the least amount of power, that's the very moment that you are closest to Christ. Though to be sure, I don't think we're ever far away from Christ. But that's the beauty of Christianity. It actually gives us a God who empathizes and recognizes and feels and has experienced the worst of what we've felt and experienced. And I think that's, I think that's worth remembering at a time like this. And for all of us during this very interesting time, just a reminder that it's, we, we've been calling it social distancing. I actually think physical distancing might be better because we still got to be social. So when you see people out and about, go out of your way to smile, wave, make eye contact. It doesn't mean we can't interact and certainly find time to get online and be with your friends and family and anyone you can. Let's keep encouraging each other. That's how we're going to get through this thing and keep praying and uh, hope for the best. And now we should have some music that helps us think about what Karl Marx might have said. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is a demand for their true happiness. The call to abandon illusions about their condition is the call to abandon a condition which requires illusions. Karl Marx. We should start every episode with a heartwarming quote from Karl Marx, shouldn't we? <laughs> But I tend to agree. We do have a condition that requires illusions. Here's a few examples. Consider the politician who runs on a particular platform that he or she knows they can't quite follow through on. And those voting know they can't follow through on it either. But it doesn't really matter. The politician asks the people to pretend to like the politician that he or she is pretending to be. Or how about two ladies? They sing at a halftime show of the Super Bowl. Now, they wear clothing and dance in such a way that it makes some people uncomfortable, and it makes the religious people super uncomfortable. And so the religious people cast disparaging remarks on social media about the women, apparently forgetting their own personal 
shortcomings. The people in their tribe, well, they eat it up. What's going on here? The religious person is asking others to pretend to like the person that they are pretending to be. How about the guy and the girl who go on the first date? And the guy says some jokes and the girl laughs extra hard. What is happening? The guy is asking the girl to pretend to like the guy that he's pretending to be. How about you and I? We show up to church to be good, to be moral, hopefully to be worthy of love. And we imagine that God sees our effort and responds by giving us, well, fill in the blank. Salvation, peace, wholeness, holiness, heaven, etc., etc. What's going on? We're asking him to pretend to like the person that we are pretending to be. Why? Why do we pretend? Well, I think it's because we have a condition that requires illusions. And the illusion is that we have to be better than we are. Why do we feel that way? Probably for a lot of different reasons. We feel this sense of separation from something. We feel inadequate or vulnerable. We get overwhelmed with all of it. It's complex. We don't know what it is exactly. Probably someone like Freud would say it's something like repressed frustration over our psychosexuality not being aligned correctly. Someone like Jacques Lacan might say it's the lack that we feel when the mirror imaging goes wrong. When we realize we're not all that we saw ourselves to be in our mother's gaze. George Lucas, he might simply say, there's been a disturbance in the force. But the church has had a lot to say, so much to say about all of this too. In fact, for many of us who grow up in a church kind of a setting, it's informed our imagination so much that we've had no other way to explain what's going on than what the church has told us. And essentially, the church has told us that we are creatures of sin, that we're sinners, and that we have fallen short of God's standards. And the reason that we feel the vulnerability and the inadequacy and this lack, this gap, this disturbance is because of sin and because of what we have done wrong. And then the church has definitively pointed to that moment in time when Adam and Eve reached for the fruit and disobeyed God when sin entered the world. Missing the reality or ignoring the reality, sometimes I don't know which, that there was a serpent around before Adam and Eve reached for the fruit. In other words, how does it work exactly when this entire thing is our fault because we disobeyed God, when in fact there was a serpent around to tempt us before we disobeyed? Like how did temptation even exist before we fell prey to temptation? You understand what I'm saying? Like, where did temptation even come from? Where did the possibility of something going bad come from if, as the church has said, all of the world's problems are because Adam and Eve sinned? My friend Peter Rollins, and I can call him my friend because we've had one phone call, and as everybody knows, that clearly constitutes you being able to say that someone is a friend. But my friend Peter... Peter Rollins is a, 
Irish philosopher. He's a writer and a theologian, and he's helped me quite a bit over the last several years expand my thinking. He has a lot to say about this. He's a big fan of of Jacques Lacan, who's a French philosopher. And so we were talking recently, and here's some of the stuff that he said. There is a, you know, the, the kind of standard reading of religion in general, to be honest, and it, it infiltrates each of the main religions, uh, is this notion of uh, kind of a oneness and a wholeness and a coming to completion. Uh, but um, I would argue definitely my own theological position is that uh, kind of the Jewish and Christian traditions <clears throat> and others as well, but those are the ones that I know most about, uh, are actually um, uh, exploring what this type of lack is, a type of gap, a type of chaos, uh, trying to navigate that and explore it. Um, in many ways, I see religion at its best as attempting to understand what Freud calls death drive. Um, sometimes if you hear like uh, some uh, evolutionary psychologists talk about religion and they see religion as a way of managing conflict and helping us be civilized and it evolves as a way to kind of like uh, allow for interaction between people, et cetera, et cetera. But um, at a deeper level, I actually think, no, that, that religion is largely a way of attempting to understand and navigate uh, this fundamentally destructive drive. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned in your email about René Girard. So there are thinkers like René Girard who explore this. So yeah, right right at the beginning of the, the Hebrew scriptures and what you're quoting, this notion of um, lack and this notion of chaos and this notion of how do we understand that and how do we tarry with it, I think is, is definitely central to the Jewish tradition. Yeah. That's the way it seems to me, too. And it seems then that what American Christianity has done to fast forward over lots of years is to try to make a quick fix out of all that to get us out of that um, that really beautiful tradition that we have of being stuck in this thing that makes us vulnerable, but it's also so potential. And so we've rushed to make meaning out of stuff too quickly. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think it's a, for me, it's like a universal temptation. Uh, this is what we want to do in sacred and secular ways, is to kind of find something that will save us in the uh, the classical sense of make everything better, <laughs> give us yeah. certainty and satisfaction. Um, but in particular, it's frustrating because there's an element of Christianity that I think offers a uh, alternative to this, but that alternative has been missed. So in, in many ways, um, the Christian tradition has been caught up in this same drive and desire to have certainty and satisfaction, uh, which ultimately I think leads to greater dis, uh, uncertainty and greater dissatisfaction. So the more you pursue certainty and satisfaction, ironically, the more uh, unsure, anxious, and dissatisfied you become. And ironically, the more you can embrace doubt and unknowing and complexity, and the more you can make peace with a type of uh, antagonism in life, the more uh, the more joy you'll experience in your life. And actually also, uh, I, the, the more, I, I want to avoid the word certainty, but Pascal has this beautiful phrase from the Pensee where he says that, the heart has reason that reason does not know. And it's that type of, uh, there is a type of reason and a type of 
security that comes from being able to embrace, embrace the unknowing. Two standard positions are that we, uh, there is no separation between us and the absolute, whatever you want to think of the absolute God or the one or uh, the universe, and that any sense of separation is a pure illusion. And that tends towards being more Eastern position. And then the other is that there is uh, what's called an ontological uh, rupture in reality. So there is an actual um, fragment fra fragmentation from the absolute that requires being bridged. So one is there's a type of illusion that we're not uh, separate from the one. <clears throat> and the other is that uh, we are and that we need to return to the one. That tends to be more Western-oriented religions. Um, I take the kind of Hegelian position that the, 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 the dialectic response to this is they're both, those are both kind of wrong. Um, and rather, the one is not at one with itself. And when we grasp that, uh, that is where we find ourselves actually at, in unity with the one because we are not at one with ourselves. The, the absolute is ruptured. And so that's where uh, salvation lies. Now, I, 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 I like what you said there, that there is chaos in God, right? That's a very sophisticated notion that has a philosophical equivalent in German idealism. Um, but the, the Christian notion is, like, if you look at the Bible, it starts with henotheism. So there's lots of gods, but one God rules over them all. Um, well, actually, it starts with polytheism. Right? There's just lots of gods and everyone has their tribal gods. And then from polytheism, you go to henotheism, which is there are multiple gods, but there's one God, Yahweh, rules over them all. Then you go into uh, monotheism um, as the text develops. And then you move into what could be called manifold monotheism or Trinitarian monotheism uh, within Christianity. And it's this movement that I think is actually really, really interesting. And this notion of a manifold monotheism is the notion that the one is not one. The one is not at one with itself. There is a oneness that is not one. <clears throat> the idea is that, that in, in most religions and standard confessional religion, I am separate from the one. I'm separate from God, whether it's an illusion or reality. And I want to return to God. <clears throat> and I feel that lack. But in Christianity, there's this notion that Christ experiences the absence of God, right? God feels the lack of God. And so when you feel the lack, when you feel that darkness, when you're in that pit of despair, you're actually with Christ on the cross. That that is when you are most at one with the one. And it sounds weird at first, but you see it in Mother Teresa and others. It's like, it's like oh my goodness, at this darkest hour, that is where I am closest to the absolute. And that's what robs that of its sting and allows you to survive. And it's something, you know, that you've experienced, obviously, firsthand. God is close yeah. to the brokenhearted. Yeah. That, I mean, because weirdly, that, that brokenness is, is enfolded into God. Yeah. Right. Oh, gosh, I love that phrase. Brokenness being folded into the heart of God. We actually learn about that kind of God through the sacred text we call the Bible. And yes, I do believe the Bible has something to say about this subject we brought up, but not in the normal way you have probably heard about it. 
and I do agree with many people, I think the Bible has just as many problems as it has answers. It presents a lot of difficult questions. So I'm not going to try to take the easy way out and force Jesus into every gap and into every answer. You know, like that old Sunday school joke where the teacher is teaching the seven-year-olds and she asks a question, okay, what's brown and furry and lives in a tree and eats nuts? And little Jose raises his hand and she calls on him and he says, I'm pretty sure it's a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> she says, you're right. Typical of many of us Christians, we try to just force the issue sometimes. And so what I'm trying to do is just to create a little bit more space and have a little bit more art as we think about this. And take us back to the beginning, because I think that the Hebrew tradition gives us some really interesting insight. And there's this great phrase, uh, the Hebrew phrase, and I'm terrible at Hebrew, but the Hebrew phrase is tohu vavohu which is uh, usually rendered in the English something like formless and void. So God hovered over the waters and they were formless and they were void. But tohu vavohu is much deeper and more complex maybe than formless and void. Or maybe it's not. Maybe we've just never unpacked formless and void. But it, it means chaos and potential. Like there was this sense of life and anti-life that was already present. Uh, both promise and vulnerability. So it is as if God is a mother hen spreading her wings over all of the chaos and potential, over all of the life and the anti-life, the promise and the vulnerability. That's tohu vavohu. And I think this is who we are as humans. We're living there in that. This is a podcast about that, about being human in the middle of that of going ahead and giving ourselves permission to locate ourselves there in that space, in the promise, in the vulnerability, in both the forward but also the backward, in the potential but also, yes, the heartbreak. Peter Rollins calls it the lack or the gap. And I think the Hebrew calls it tohu vavohu. It's the push of life against the pole of anti-life. And there's something about the phrase of all that, the up and down of all that, that's led me recently to attach the word texture to all of it. And the point I've been arriving at is not that, okay, this texture, this pull back and forth, this up and down, this overwhelming potential possibility, but also heartbreak. It's not like that the texture is so overwhelming that it therefore means that we are separate from God but rather that God is with us in the middle of all of it. And so we didn't need Jesus to die, first of all, to, to appease God's anger. I loved the energy that I sensed from Dr. Julia Robinson Moore. She talked about the love of God, which manifested itself in the crucifixion. It's, it's almost like conservative seminaries just give you half of the picture Right. And they don't give you the part that, that they don't they give you the beginning, you know, and it's all. But no, he, he so loved us. And the other thing I think he figured out and my husband said this. Um, he said that God figured out that we as humans, our nature is that we could do life without him. But Genesis reveals that he could not do life without us. Right. 
And so he pursued us like the prodigal. He, he, he pursued Israel. He's constantly like, he says, oh, I'm done. And I'm going to raise up and start again. And then, no, I'm going to send you a prophet. And, oh, you killed that one. I'm going to send you another one. And, you know, think of all the prophets they killed. And then here comes Jesus, right? And it, they knew he, he had figured it out. You know, they're going to kill him. <laughs> but I'm going to make this work because I, I cannot live without them. And that's been his stance all the time. So we didn't need Jesus to die in order to appease God's anger. But neither did we need Jesus to die to get us reconnected, so to speak, back with God. It's not like Jesus on the cross is the bridge that gets us from point A to point B. No, I think a healthier way to look at it is we've always been connected with God. We haven't always known it, but God has always been there with us. Think about what Jesus has the gracious father say in the parable of the prodigal son when he's talking to the older brother at the end of the parable. The father says, my son, you've always been with me. Everything you've ever needed has been yours. And that's a picture of all of us. God's always been with us. He's never turned his back on us. We've always been connected, though at times, of course, we didn't always understand that, and we've turned our back on him. He's always been right there in love. When, there, when we're in the middle of the chaos and the vulnerability, the promise and the potential, the tohu vavohu, and we're feeling overwhelmed and inadequate, it's so important to remember we don't have to behave better. We don't have to pretend to be something other than who we are. Grace finds all of us, no matter what. It's not like a binary, you got to get right, or God's going to be upset at you kind of a thing. It's not right and wrong. It's just a human thing of being in the middle of the texture and of knowing that God is with us. So we don't have to fall prey to the condition that requires illusions. We can be who we are. God loves all of us just as we are. This is beautiful, man. And this is a podcast about us humans living in the middle of the beauty of all of this texture. All right, well, here I am realizing that this episode is going to get way too long if I try to include everything. So I've decided to split it up. And this is a good spot to split it right here as we're talking about beauty. So you can jump back into episode one a of season two to catch the rest of us and remember uh we're talking about beauty and we're going to set cindy wayne brant up to say some good things thanks for being with and i'll catch you next time